0: Anyways, we've seen him as the Creator, the seed of the woman, the Redeemer, the seed of Abraham, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the Lamb of God, the, the way, the coming king. Um, that was with talking about Judah, the seed of Judah. Our Passover lamb, we've seen him as the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, the mediator, the sin sacrifice, the fruit, the cure, and then the prophet. Last week we, we saw him as, as the prophet. This week we want to transition into the life of David um, very quickly. This week and next week we'll be looking at. Um, what God has done through David. And we want to see Jesus as the Davidic king. Now, this is, again, last week we talked about how important the passage last week, looking at Moses being the prophet, how important that was to Jews. Well, this passage we want to look at this morning, we've already read in 2 Samuel 7, is very critical to them as well. Because Israel, right now, is still yearning and waiting for the son of David to come. Okay? And so this is a really important thing. And so as we read 2 Samuel 7 this morning, we want to look, again, a little bit at this from the practical side. And again, as we've considered this in each one of the messages, we've looked at the practical application of the passage, and then we've looked at the prophetical application of the passage, pointing to Christ. And so, as we want, to, as we look at the, the practical application, we want to see God in two different ways here, as we look at it. First of all, we're going to see God, in choosing David, we're going to see him as the discerner of man's heart. Well, we saw... Um, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, so if, you're, if you had your finger there, if you've kept a marker there, you can see in verse 8, where it says, Now David said on that day, whoever, and I'm in the wrong chapter, 7, verse 8, there we go. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is Yahweh speaking to Nathan, Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, Look, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. God comes to, to, to David. David has a, a great desire of his heart, and that is to do what? To build God a house. He wants to build the temple, a tabernacle, something permanent for God. He says, man, I'm, I'm living in this, this awesome house, but what, what's God living in? He's living in a tent. I mean, God deserves a whole lot more than this. What was I thinking of when I built me a house first, right? And so he says, I'm going to build a house for God. Well, Nathan says, you know, do whatever in in your, your heart. Okay? He knows something about, about David. But God comes to Nathan. Now, I think it's interesting, God didn't come to who? David. He comes to Nathan, Nathan being the prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh, and, and he says to Nathan, he says, Nathan, you blew it this time. You said, go ahead and do something when I didn't tell you to go ahead and do it. Did you get it? Now, this, this is a little aside here, this is not part of the message, but this is a very important thing. Remember when Moses... When he was in the wilderness and people came and said, Moses, what should we do? Moses said, what? Let me go talk to God. And they said, yeah, the last time that happened was 40 days. you know." But anyway, so he, he goes into the, to the tabernacle of meeting and when he gets an answer from God, he comes back out and he, and he reveals it to the people. Nathan didn't do that. David comes to Nathan and he says, this is what I want to do. I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, go for it. And God comes to Nathan at night and says, what? You spoke out of turn, dude. i That's not what I said. It may be what you said, but it's not what I said. Here's what I say. I chose you, David. And now, this is kind of an interesting thing, okay? We're going to talk about this a little bit more in detail. He says, but I chose you. You were just a what? You were just a shepherd boy. You were just a shepherd boy, and I came and I chose you. And so, we see then... In, in second Samuel seven that God was the one who chose him. And now he goes back to this point in 1 Samuel thirteen. Go turn back a few pages in your Bible to 1 Samuel 13, where we we see this original calling then of, of David. And thirteen and fourteen of first Samuel thirteen is really in the context of, of God speaking um, through Samuel to Saul. So another prophet, another king, right? Um, and so Samuel says to Saul, verse 13, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, it says, Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of Yahweh your God, which he has commanded you. For now Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's an interesting thought by itself, huh? But now your kingdom shall not continue. Yahweh has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And Yahweh has commanded him to be the commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, stop there for a moment, and let's break this out just very quickly. We've got lots of verses to go through today. What was Yahweh, through Samuel, saying to Saul? Okay, that was was literally what he said. Read between the lines a little bit. What did he just tell Saul? Okay, I I was going to use you, but you haven't done what I asked, so think of the comparative that he made. What can you say about Saul? He's not a man after God's heart. Do you get it? I've rejected you, because why? Right, but because I now have chosen someone who is going to be after my own heart, which means you aren't. Does that make sense? Okay? This is a struggle. Now, I mean, because this is going to be important for us to to keep in our memory banks here, because you know as much about David as I know about David, right? And David, a lot of times, was worse than Saul. Yes? I mean, what did Saul do? Saul wanted to worship God, he wanted to offer sacrifices, but he didn't wait for Samuel. He didn't do it according to God's timing. What did David do? He committed adultery and then murdered a guy. Now, according to our standard, who's worse? David. According to God's standard, Saul did it because he didn't have a heart for God. Even when David did it, he had a heart for God. Do you get it? That's a mind-boggling thing. But God is the discerner of man's heart. We're going to see here in this next passage when David is chosen from amongst Jesse's sons, right? In 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7, some of you can probably quote this to me. Okay, some of you children should be able to quote at least half of this to me, coming to some of the summer programs over the last couple years, right? But beginning in verse um, sixteen, what six? I'm sorry. Yes. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, "Surely Yahweh's anointed is here before before him." So Samuel, you know, he's he's there and he's looking at Jesse's sons, and Eliab comes up before him, and Eliab is. Tall and strong and, you know, I mean, this is the guy. And so Samuel looks at him and says, wow, this has got to be the guy. But Yahweh says to Samuel, verse 7, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. Wow. For Yahweh, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the, what? Outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. When Saul was chosen, do you remember why Saul was chosen as king? He was head and shoulders above all the other men. Who chose him to be king? No, the people didn't. God did. Now the people were crying out, they wanted a king, okay? And this is where we go with the people chose him, okay? Cuz the people were crying out, we want a king like what? All the other nations. So what did God do for them? He gave him a king like all the other nations. And how did all the other nations choose? Based upon their eyes. On the looks, they looked at the guy. And so based upon the physical, the external, the temporal, is how man chooses. But God says, I don't choose that way. You know what you got when you chose. When I choose, it's going to be a man after my own heart. That's a pretty cool thing. I get a lot of great comfort from that. I mess up an awful lot. But I know God looks at me, not through my externals, not through my failures, but at my, my heart. God wants my heart. God wants your heart. Miss Phyllis? Please. For Israel? Yes. Was the question was 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 Saul the first king of Israel? And the answer is yes. Now I can still remember hearing a goal are all saints with the bottom of that. The Samuel or Saul becoming king was that it was God did it because they asked. He never intended them to have a physical king. He was their king. He was their king. I would I would dispute that. Because God did have in his plan that they would have a king. I think that would be David. Because he says in Deuteronomy 18, remember um, Deuteronomy 17 and 18, last week when we did the prophet, if you would continue reading, he talks then about the qualifications of a king. That he would give them a king. And that the king would um, be from their people. That he, would not, he should not multiply to himself wives, nor should he multiply silver and gold, nor should he, multi- or, nor should he multiply horses to take his people back down to Egypt. Okay? There were three qualifications, which Sam, Solomon, which we're not going to talk about Solomon, but Solomon went in the face of every single one of those. He broke every one of them. So I do think it was God's plan to have a king, um, who would be, in a sense, his representative on the earth, who would be the, and we're going to see this in a moment, okay? because God says this for David, you know, he's going to set him up eternally, because he is going to be the type of Jesus. It was not his plan for them to do it at that point, and so... He was revealing that they were not rejecting Samuel, but they were rejecting God himself. That's exactly right. The the problem there was not so much that that they would have an earthly king, but that man themselves were turning away from their true king, the king of kings and lord of lords, to serve an earthly king. And So any earthly king ultimately should be doing what? God's will, but pointing people to the heavenly king. That's exactly right. So even when the ultimate king, if you would, was here in the earth originally, that's Jesus, what did he say that his, his, his will was to do? The Father's will. That he, he was here to glorify the Father and to point people to the Father, who was ultimately the, the sovereign one. Th- does that make sense? So every earthly king who was ever on the earth, their job is to always point people to, to heaven, the heavenly king. The problem is that most earthly kings point themselves or point everybody to who? Themselves. That's exactly right. To elevate themselves. So anyways, but yes, so here in 1 Samuel 16, we see that God then says, you know, man looks in the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so I've said I'm going to choose somebody after my own heart. And so we know then that, you know, not reading the rest of this passage, but all the the, the sons of Jesse come through, not one is found. Samuel says, well, looky, something's going on here because, you know, I haven't found one yet. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, there's still what? There's still the little guy. He's he's where is he where is he at? Well, he's out in the in the sheepfold, you know. Nobody what thought that he would be the guy. In fact, honestly, for Jesse's sake, he didn't necessarily know that Samuel was going to come and anoint a new king. He was just coming to have a what dinner, a sacrifice. They were going to have a sacrifice, and so um, so he says, "Well, we can't move forward until until he comes." And so when he comes in, God declares that this is the new king, and he anoints anoints David. And so we know then that God is the one who who looks at the heart. So let's, let's look at this application a little bit more, go into the New Testament, turn to Matthew 15, Matthew chapter 15, and this is very applicable to us this morning, being here together. Again, a passage, and a lot of this may be old hat to some of you, but you know what, it's good for us to be reminded of, of God's desires for us. And uh, um, I think, George, it was um, you who were commenting on um, whose testimony about being church and getting comfortable? Uh, yeah, I know, but you were, you were applying that from somebody else gave a testimony. Daniel. Daniel, yeah. And so, um, yeah, you know, that God wants our, our, our worship to be from our, our hearts. And we see that in Matthew 15. Look at verse 8 and 9. In fact, I'm going to verse, start at verse 7 for the context is Jesus cries out, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, what does vain mean? Uselessly, meaninglessly, emptily. They worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If you are here today, and you are just punching the ticket, your heart's not here to worship God. God says what? It's worthless. You might as well have gone to the beach. You might as well go enjoy yourself. You know, have fun. Sleep in. Do something. But if you're only punching a ticket, you're here for the wrong reason. Now, kids don't do try that with your mom and dad, you know. Well, Pastor Bob said that you ought to let me go to the beach because I'm not there to worship. Anyways, it's good for you to learn. But as adults, we know that our desire is to to worship the Lord. And it ought to be with our, our hearts. Psalm 139. Turn back there. Psalm 139. Where we read, the psalmist declare, talking about how he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And in verse 23 and 24, toward the end, David writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So David, the man after God's own heart, desiring to to glorify God from his heart, says to God what? Search my heart. When's the last time you were bold enough to ask God to search your heart? To see if there's any wicked way in you? And then do what? Reveal it to you and change you. It ought to be your desire. If you are a man or a woman after God's own heart, then you, it should be your heart, if you would, to continually grow closer and closer to what God's heart. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, it just—it's just so so right, so so there. And so, Psalm 39, and then Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Can anybody quote that for me? Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. The word of God is. Living and powerful, okay, and sharper than any two edged sword, and is what? The dividing asunder of soul and spirit and bone and mirror, and is a. You did it too fast, David. You got your Daniel. That is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the, the heart, okay? That God brings us His Word to fillet us open. To be the discerner between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And so we are judged than through God's word. And God gives it to us because he knows what? Not just we need it, but he knows our hearts. Get it? Again, going back, and choosing David, we see God as the discerner of man's heart. And just as he was a discerner of David's heart, so he knew that David was a man after his own heart, he knows everybody's heart. He knew Saul wasn't. He knew David was. In the same way, he knows whether I am or I'm not. And he knows whether you are or whether you're not. And at what degree you are. Does that make sense? And he is willing, then, to take his word and to use it surgically to remove the dross and the cancer from you. What should you be willing to do? Grab a hold of the word and read it so that what? He can do his surgery. So many of us, though, desire not to read the word so that we're what? We're not convicted about what's going on in our lives. Psalm 119, verse 11. Anybody know it? Come on. Come on. No, that's verse 9. That's the second one. Verse 11 is, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, come on now. You ought to know that. Okay, that's a, right there. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, why do we hide God's word, which is living and powerful and sharper than a 2 edged sword and is a discerner between a thought the thoughts and intents of our heart? Why do we hide it in our hearts? So we don't sin against him. Does that make sense? Because God knows our heart. And we know from the book of Jeremiah we're not going to go there, but our hearts are what? deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, okay? And so so in in Christ, our hearts are cleansed, we are cleansed, but we know we still struggle with the old man, and so we desire to hide God's word in our heart, so that we do not what? We don't sin, meaning that we're not falling to the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Do you get it? The heart, the heart, the heart, the heart is the key of all things that are there. Not only do we see God as um, the discerner of man 's heart, but in his covenant with David, we see him as the confirmer of covenants. We talked about this slightly this morning in Sunday school if you were there, looking at isaiah forty nine and seeing that God is faithful. Yahweh is the faithful one, and that when when the Messiah came, the Messiah would be for the covenants as well to, to, to confirm the covenant it 's because he is the the faithful one and so as we see this with David and in 2 Samuel 7, hopefully you haven't totally lost that spot. Go back to 2 Samuel, because again, that's our text for this morning. 2 Samuel. And as we go through this series, we're, we're reading the passage and, and taking glimpses of it as we come through. So it's more kind of topical as we slide through. But in 2 Samuel 7, the piece that we want to look at is down there in verse 16, where God says to, to David that he was going to do this um, miraculous work, this mighty work in David. And he says, In your house, in your kingdom, shall be established what? Forever before you. Your throne shall be established what? Forever. So twice in the promise that God makes with David, he tells him what? It's going to be eternal. It's going to be forever. It's going to be never ending. Okay? And so then he goes on with the covenant that he makes with David, and he makes this promise to him, and so we see this promise continuing on. Go to turn over to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, beginning at verse 31. This is when, when Solomon um, Solomon's passed away, and Rehoboam becomes the, uh, the follower, the, the new king. And Rehoboam, instead of following the wise counsel of the elderly, count, Counselors, He chooses to follow the foolish counsel of his peers, okay? And so the, the house of Israel is divided. And so beginning at verse 31, we read, and, and he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give, you, give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worship Asherah, and the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, the Moabites, and Milchem, the, the the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as his father David did. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we all we know what David did as well, but he says he hasn't. You know, Solomon hasn't kept my statutes like his father David did. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself, to put my name there. And we can continue on, but you get the picture over and over again. God is saying to Jeroboam, in this little conversation with Jeroboam, Look, I'm going to give you ten tribes, but I'm only going to give you ten tribes. Why? Because of David. Because I made a promise to David. And I'm going to keep my promise to David. And so David's throne is going to continue to last. I will be faithful to my covenant to David. Do you get it? God gave his word and God's word, always what stands; it is always secure. God is faithful to His, his covenants. Uh, turn to Psalm eighty-nine. This is one of my favorite. I've got lots of favorite portions of Scripture, um, but this is this is one of them. And you're gonna say, "Huh?" But it really, if you think about the impact of what's being stated here in Psalm eighty-nine, beginning at verse twenty. And again, we could read the whole psalm, but. Um, We'll start at verse 20. It says, I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my chesed, my faithfulness in my emet, my mercy shall be with him. In my name, his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea, and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My chesed, my mercy, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever. And his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my chesed, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my chesed, my faithfulness, to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness... I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever in his throne as the seed before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. God says concerning his covenant with David that he is the one who did what? He's the one who made it. He's the one who established it. And over and over again in this passage, he says what? keep it. I'll keep it. And what I love is he says I won't even what? Alter it. We love to alter the truth. Slightly at times. To our what? To our advantage. Or when we realized what? We couldn't keep our word. And so we act like our word was what? Different than what we really said. We twist it just a little bit. So we still look what? Faithful. God says, I won't alter. (coughs) Excuse me. I won't alter the thing that's got out of my mouth. I won't be a a liar. I will not lie to my servant David. You say, well, okay, so what's the big deal here? (coughs) If God lied to David, if he could alter... The promise that he made to David. What about the promise he made to you? I mean, go with me now to Jeremiah 33. To Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 14. Again, another extremely important passage in the Bible. There are thousands of those, aren't there? This is just one of them. But in the context of God's faithfulness to his covenants, beginning in Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 14. We read, Behold, the days are coming, saith Yahweh, that I will perform the good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days, and at that time I will cause to grow up to David. Now this is Jeremiah. He's talking during the days of the dispersion. You know, of the the exile to Babylon. (coughs) Just when all that's going on. And so this is hundreds of years later. And Yahweh says that I will perform the good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah, in those days and at that time I will cause up to grow to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will, will dwell safely. And, in this name by which, and, and this is the name by which she shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. God's still going back to this promise. I mean, when everything in Israel looked like it was lost. I mean, it wasn't even that it was just divided between the north and the south. You could still justify it that God did what? He kept one tribe. He kept Judah for David. And so, you know, so God didn't really alter it. He kept it. He kept the throne. But still, to God, that would still be an altering. Think about it. When when God made the promise to David, what was there? There were 12 tribes. tribes. There were 12 tribes of Israel. So God's promise to Israel was much greater. But the children of of, of Israel could could justify and say, well, that's okay. He still has Judah. And so God's still being faithful because there's still a king of Judah, right? Well, now all of a sudden, God does what? He gets rid of that. Because now Israel's already become enslaved to Assyria. And Judah is ready to become enslaved to Babylon. Do you get it? Now where's the promise of God? And God in his boldness, I love this, comes out and says, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, to sacrifice continually. Now understand, in the same breath, God says, God says, David will never lack a man to sit on the throne. You'll know who it is. There will always be somebody who is established for the throne of Israel. Okay. So even, even in the days of dispersion, even in the exile in Babylon, they kept track. They knew who was of the Davidic line. And he says, nor will you have priests, nor will you lack priests. And so they knew what? Who the Levites were, who the priests were. Okay? Not just Levites, but those from, from Aaron, the Aaronic side. In the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will be no day or night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. We can stop there. The rest of it stays the same. So here we go. You want to destroy God's covenant? You want to destroy God's plan? Now you've got it. How do you destroy it? Nope, nope, nope. We'll get there in a moment. We'll get there in a moment. Destroy the night and day. So when you make a big enough missile, you fire it at the sun, you blow up the sun, God can't do what he said. Because God said, if you can destroy my covenant with the sun, you can destroy my covenant with David. So there you go. You blow up the sun, you get rid of the covenant. What's the problem with it? It doesn't matter, Clark. Tra- track with that one. What happens if I blow up the sun? We're all gone, man. Because we, we, you know, we're in that gravitational pull. All of a sudden we get shot out like a slingshot. And what happens to us within, within seconds? We freeze to death. You know, not to mention, the fact, we'll probably run into some other planet that's going... And we'll go, you know, anyways. The point is, what happens at time at that point? They're all gone. So it doesn't matter. It's a moot point. So, so what God is saying, for us as, as, as individuals on the earth, what is the one thing physically, honestly, physically, that you can rely upon every day? There's going to be the sun coming up. The sun's coming up. And so God goes to that one thing, that you can sink your teeth into, almost, if you would. And God says, if you can stop the sun from coming up every morning, you can stop my, my, my promise to David. So how sure is the promise to David? It's pretty sure. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty sure. And so, again, to us then, I mean, think about it. If God can do that to David, what about us? Turn to John 5. John five twenty four. 24. Jesus is sa- says, and some of yours might, versions might have, truly, truly, I say to you. My New King James says, most assuredly, I say to you. It, it's the, the, the actual, the most, meaning what? This is the most, assuredly. In other words, it can't assuredly more than this. <laughs> this is it. The most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me, what? has not gonna have has everlasting light and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I love this part whenever I get to hear this you can't kill me isn't this awesome stuff you can't kill me I mean, I am invincible, not because of me, not because i'm one of the the uh, you know the the superheroes or whatever, but because My God is greater than all the superheroes. And I'm just living in a tent, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm looking forward to the day when I leave this tent, and I can be with him forever. And the worst thing you can do to me, according to this world is the best thing that you can do to me, because you can't kill me. I have, right now, everlasting life. I am not going to die and get it. I got it. What I am going to get in that day is a new body. This corruptible is going to be set aside and I'm going to put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. What a glorious day. I'm looking forward to it. This body of death is going to put on the glorious body of life. You know those lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. You know that stuff that you struggle with and you say, Oh, I hate me for this. It's gone. And you can be in the presence of, of God himself. In that glorified body. But if God's promise to David isn't true, God's promise to you isn't true either. And if God's promise to Israel isn't true, it's not true to you either. I know, I have great confidence in the, what is commonly referred to as the rapture of the church, what I refer to as the harpazo of the church, the, the gathering up, the taking up of the church. And I have great confidence that it's going to happen before the final seven years, the final week of Daniel's vision of Daniel chapter 9. I am pre-tribulational, quote-unquote, okay? Probably not in the way that you understand pre-tribulationalism with Tim LaHaye and everything. But, but nonetheless, I am pre-tribulational, okay? People say, oh, I, no, that sounds more like mid-trib. No, I'm definitely pre-trib. And I'm pre-trib because of God's promise to Israel. Not because of the New Covenant, not because of the New Testament, because of the Old Covenant. God made a covenant with Israel and he has not changed it. He made a covenant with David and he has not altered it. It will will be established just as he said it will be. And he says in Daniel chapter 9 that the 70 weeks are for your holy city, for your holy people, for your holy temple. It's not for us, folks. God is going to one day begin to work singularly through the nation of Israel, once more. And when he does, so in Revelation chapter 10, I think it's where it's at, he's going to take us up, that Jesus is going to come in a cloud, rainbow wrapped around his head, the thunder is going to utter, we're going to be caught up at the, sound, the sounding of the final trumpet, just like Paul said, it's an amazing thing, it's all there. And, and we're going to be caught up, and in Revelation chapter 11, right in the beginning of it, there's the, the measuring of the temple, in the beginning of the final seven years, where the, the two witnesses are on the earth, and they're witnessing for three and a half years, they're killed, they're laid out for three and a half days, they're risen, risen up, they're, they're resurrected right there, and then you have the final three and a half years where the beast is going to reign on the earth. That's all a little bit of a slide. Why, though? Because I believe in the covenants of God, and I believe that God is chesed, that he is faithful to the objects of his covenant. And if he's not faithful... To the objects of his other covenants, he will not be faithful to the object of this new covenant either. Do you get it? Folks, it's a big deal. There are churches around here who believe that you are Israel. Not spiritual Israel, you're physical Israel. That God has done away with Israel. And that you are Israel. The church has become Israel. If that is the case, how do you know that sometime in the future he's not going to say, I've had it with the church? The church is just as bad as Israel was. And you know what? I'm not going to do it with anybody. I'm going to create some new aliens on another planet, and I'm going to make my covenant with them. Does God have the right to do, make aliens on another planet if he chooses to? Yes, he does. He's God. And so if God chose to make aliens on another planet, he had the right to make aliens on another planet. But in, in getting rid of the covenant that he has with us, they wouldn't have any confidence. Do you get it? He wouldn't be a what? A faithful God. He'd be just like man. God is not a man that he should lie. Isn't that amazing? You all know it. The one attribute that God equates himself, compares himself to man. God is not a man that he should lie. God is faithful. And then John 14, Jesus says, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. God, Jesus, in the flesh, God in the flesh, made me a promise. I'm looking forward to it. I know he's making me a a room. He's making me a habitation. And when he's ready to to bring me back, he's going to come get me. I believe that Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime. But whether I I live long enough to see the harpazo of the church, the gathering of the of the church to him, or whether I I gather to him today by some other means, when he's done with the room, I get to go. Does that make sense? And so I have no fear. I don't look forward to the process. That kind of fears me a little bit. But I have no fear of the other side. Now the prophetical side. What's the importance of Christ's lineage? And here's, Don, you're exactly right. Where we're going to get into this the importance of the lineage. What's so important about this promise to David? Well, first of all, it's the authentication of the Messianic claim. Now, this is important because the, the Jews understand this very, very well. One's lineage is very important. So, Paul says, he says, I was, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I was a stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was circumcised, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning law, I was a Pharisee. Touching righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. He goes through his pedigree. Right away, he's declaring his pedigree to everybody. He saying, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Jew's Jew. I'm just not a, a partial Jew. I'm just not one of these guys who claims to be, but I'm it. Not only was I born of the best stock, but then I lived it too. And I persecuted the church. I was so much a Jew. I was so much for our, the law that when I saw something that I thought was an enemy, I did what? I did everything I could to annihilate it. In um, the book of Matthew, and in the book of Luke, what do we read about? In, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. The lineage of Christ. His pedigree, if you would. The lineage of Christ, both through um, Mary and through through Joseph. The lineage is of extreme importance. It gives the authentication authentication of the Messianic claim. We're told in Genesis chapter 49, we saw this earlier, when we talked about the seed of Judah, that he would be of... Judah. We're told here in our thing today that he would be of David. Do you understand? So these things have to be. They have to be so. And so you can read those later um, in there. But something important happened in 70 AD. The destruction of the temple. That was a paramount event for the Jews. Do you know what was stored in the temple? All the birth records. The genealogies were all there. No longer do they have the validation that they need to prove that anybody is at the line of David. It's a big deal. Now, they're ready to build a temple. They're they're all ready. And, and, And they've got their priesthood. But you know how they did it? They don't have no lineage of that. They've tried to orally pass down the lineage the best they can, but do you, anybody, you know anybody named Cohen? Do you know what Cohen is in Hebrew? Priest. Do you know anybody who is named Levi? Do you know what Levi means? Levi. Anyways, um, it means uh, to them, <laughs> it means that they are of the tribe of Levi. And so a few years ago, the Chases, those who remember um, Kathy Chase, she was of the tribe of Levi. Or it is assumed that she was of the tribe of Levi because of her surname. Good. Phyllis? They don't know that. that the assumption is that they kept their names coming through as their surnames. And so, for example, you have Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon the son of John. Or Simon the son of Jonah. And so you would keep your surname. So actually, this would be Andrew Bar-Bob. <laughs> Bar-Robert Bar-Bob. I like Bar-Bob better. Um, um, anyways, Ben-Bob. And then you have Ben, Ben, Bob. (laughs) It's kind of fun. Anyways. um, But, in fact, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Ben Yamin. So, son of my right hand. And so they would keep those names somehow as they went along. But they don't have them for David. And they really don't have them for the priesthood as well. So, when the temple was destroyed, any ultimate verification, authentication of what tribe you were from, was gone. Do you remember, during the days of the judges, when Gideon, I think it was Gideon, I'm going to probably mess this up, so if you know this better than I do, refresh my memory on this, but when Gideon was battling, and they, and they chased the, the other kings, the, the, the men of um, Manasseh uh, did not go with them, I think it was Manasseh, that did not go with them, and anyways, there was a, a group of them, they, they fled, and there was a group of them coming back over the, the, the ford, over the chasm of the river. And um, to discern whether these were traitors, people who ran from the war or not, they made them say the word, anybody remember? Shibboleth. Good job, Jesse. Now, do you know the rest of it? Did I tell the right story? Anyways, look up in your, in your and you find out whether it was the right story or not. But anyways, whoever, whatever the story was, they made him say, Shibboleth, and if... Or in well, no, actually they would say thibboleth, because they they did it with a what okay. a lisp. See in in the in the Hebrew you have like a W what looks almost like a W to us. It's like a, a pitchfork kind of look. Okay, and if there's a, a a marker on the the one side it's a sheen. If there's a marker on the other side it's a seen. Okay, and it derives from the one letter. Okay because of the fact that people couldn't say things right, necessarily. They had dialects and stuff like that. And so if, if they said, thank you, my dear, um, then they would say to him, say Shibboleth. And if he would say Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce it, then they what? They killed him. <laughs> On that day, you, you hoped that you didn't have your lisp, And, um, and so, but anyways, so they, they, they understood that, okay? And so the lineage was important, because if they didn't, they came along, and they had to prove what? They had to prove their lineage. If they couldn't prove their lineage, then they had to say, say the word. If they couldn't say the word, they were dead. Lineage is huge to the Jews. Ultimately, it's huge because of Messiah. Because now there is no ultimate verification of who Messiah is. Now, isn't that kind of neat that it happened right after Jesus the importance of Christ's lineage. Secondly, and finally, the evidence of Christ's lineage, which we see, again, in Matthew chapter 1, that it was through Joseph, and in Luke chapter 3, it was through Mary. And you can read those later, long portions. But because of the detail of the lineage that we're given, we see that both Mary and Joseph are of the line of David. Isn't that neat? Now, some people would argue with this, okay, because of what the situation is. I mean, whose father was Jesus? God, not Joseph. Okay? So why would it be important that Joseph was of the line of David? Because he was understood legally as the the guardian of of, of Jesus. And his lineage would be then important because passing through the father. Do you get it? So it's very important. And another little aside you can look there um, and, and look that God had actually eradicated in Christ, forgiving all sins. He had stated that no, no king would ever come again on the throne of... Um, and my mind just went, shh, erased. Um, no. Uh, he's called Kaniah. Um, is one of his nicknames, but it's not... Um, and I'm thinking Jeconiah, but I, I could be wrong. But anyways, you can look at it. But he was prophetically stated that because of what he did, none of the kings would come through him anymore. But that's who Joseph is from. That from um, Mary, she is actually from Solomon through Nathan and, and such, and through the, the proper line. Because that's the, the the proper genealogy of Christ. But in, in Joseph, it, it's a great act of God's grace. Where where the restoration is given back to the fullness of the the, 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 the Davidic line. It's so, so a neat thing. So, through Joseph and through Mary, we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this thing. Now, going back to the original part of the message then, the question is, how would God describe your heart? God says he wants a man after his own heart. In Revelation chapter 2, is the beginning of the seven churches of the Revelation and God's um, writing to them through Jesus. But to the first church, to the church of Ephesus, he starts off and he says, I know your works. I know how faithful you've been. I know how you've tested those who've said they were prophets and, and you've found them not to be so. And he says, "I, you've done all these wonderful things. It's a great epithet." He says, nevertheless, I have one thing against you. One, one little thing. One thing against you. You've lost your first love. And if you don't repent, change the way you think, if you don't repent and return from whence you have fallen, I will come and remove your candlestick. God is all about your heart. He doesn't care about your actions. No, he does. But he knows if he has your heart, what else he have? He has your actions. But too many of us get ourselves distracted, and we think, as long as I do the right thing, it doesn't matter. No, God says, no, 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 no. God wants you to be cleansed in your heart. Just as, Paul, or as G- David said in that psalm that we read, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. See if there be any wicked way in me. How faithful are you to your word? As God was faithful to his word, his yes was yes and his no was no. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. So what about you? Are you considered trustworthy? Are you a man or a woman of your word? It ought to be your desire. How convinced are you that salvation can only be found through Jesus Christ? It can only be found through the one who is from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of David, as well as all these other things that we've been looking at. Jesus is the only one who's ever been able to fulfill all those things. Do you believe that? I know I'm preaching to the choir, and you'd all say yes, yes, yes. But what if persecution, as Marcia shared in the Testimony time with the voice of the martyrs, what if persecution came today? Would you be willing to die for that conviction? Jesus was. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then he died to prove it. Do you get it? If there was multiple ways, there was really no reason for him to die. But Jesus was that convinced that he was the only way that he was willing to die for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. You are faithful and true. You are a chesed and a You never change. You're the same yesterday as you are today, and you will be forever. I look forward, Lord, to, to being in your presence. I know that that day there will be the testing as well, and the, the judgment of myself as I appear before your, your throne, Lord. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to you while we're on this earth. But we know, Lord, it's not by our works by which we were saved. We know that it's by your grace and through faith. And we're thankful for that. For if it were by works, none of us would have even a chance to see your face. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to proclaim your goodness to those that are about us. Lord, help us to to seek your face and to to seek having a heart after your own heart. And Lord, we do cry out with David, asking you to search our hearts, O God. See if there be any wicked way in us. And cleanse us, Lord. Change us. You're the potter. You're the clay. We're the clay. Mold us and make us. In Christ's name, amen.